Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled Jerome. By his mid-30s, Jerome was probably the greatest Christian scholar of his time. He is one of the greatest figures in the history of Bible translation, spending three decades producing a Latin version that would be the standard for a thousand years. But Jerome was no bookish egghead. He longed for the hermetic life that we considered in the previous episode and often exhibited a sour disposition that showered his opponents with biting sarcasm and brutal invective. His given name was Eusebius Hieronymus Sophronius and was born in 345 to wealthy Christian parents either in Aquileia in northeast Italy or across the Adriatic in the region of Dalmatia. At about 15, Jerome and a friend went to Rome to study rhetoric and philosophy. He engaged with abandon many of the immoral escapades of his fellow students and then followed up these debaucheries with intense self-loathing. To appease his conscience, he visited the graves and tombs of the martyrs and saints in Rome's extensive catacombs. Jerome later said that the darkness and terror that he found there seemed an appropriate warning for the hell that he knew his soul was destined for. This tender conscience is interesting in light of his initial skepticism about Christianity. That skepticism began to thaw when he realized that what he was experiencing was the conviction of the Holy Spirit. His mind could not hold out against his heart, and he was eventually converted. At 19, he was baptized. He then moved to Trier in Gaul, where he took up theological studies and began making copies of commentaries and doctrinal works for wealthy patrons. Jerome then returned to Aquileia, where he settled into the church community and made many friends. Several of these accompanied him when he set out in 373 on a journey through Thrace and Asia Minor to northern Syria. At Antioch, two of his companions died, and he became seriously ill himself. During this illness, he had a vision that led him to lay aside his studies in the classics and devote himself to God. He plunged into a deep study of the Bible under the guidance of a church leader at Antioch named Apollinarius. This Apollinarius was later labeled a heretic for his unorthodox views of Christ. He was one of several at that time that was trying to work out how to understand and express the nature of Jesus. Was he God, man, or both? And if both, how are we to understand these two natures operating within the one Jesus? Apollinarius said that Jesus had a human body and soul, but that his mind was divine. This view, creatively called Apollinarianism, was declared heretical at the Council of Constantinople in 381, though the church had pretty well dispensed with it as a viable view of Christ back in 362 at a synod in Alexandria, which was presided over by our friend Athanasius. While in Antioch, and as a fallout of his illness and the loss of his friends, Jerome was seized with a desire to live an ascetic life as a hermit. He retreated to the wilderness southwest of Antioch, already well populated by fellow hermits. Jerome spent his isolation in more studying and writing. He began learning Hebrew under the tutelage of a converted Jew and kept in correspondence with the Jewish Christians of Antioch. He obtained a copy of the Gospels in Hebrew, fragments of which are preserved in his notes. Jerome translated parts of this then into Greek. Returning to Antioch in 379, he was ordained by Paulinus whom you may remember was the bishop of the Nicene congregation there. This is the bishop and the church that was supported by Rome 
when the Arian church at Antioch was taken over by a new, also Nicene bishop named Miletius. Instead of the two churches merging, because the cause of their division was now removed, they became the political front lines in the battle for supremacy between Rome and Constantinople. Recognizing Jerome's skill as a scholar, Bishop Paulinus rushed to ordain Jerome as a priest, but the monk would only accept it on the condition that he'd never have to carry out priestly functions. Instead, Jerome plunged himself into his studies, especially in scripture. He attended lectures, examined parchments, and interviewed teachers and theologians. He then went to Constantinople to pursue a study of the scriptures under Gregory of Nazianzus. He spent two years there, then was asked by Paulinus back to Antioch to accompany him to Rome so the whole issue over who the rightful bishop of Antioch was could be settled. Paulinus knew that Jerome would make a mighty addition to his side, and indeed he did. Pope Damasus I was so impressed with Jerome, he persuaded him to stay in Rome. For the next three years, Jerome became something of a celebrity. He took a prominent place in most of the Pope's councils. At one point, his influence over the Pope was so great, he had the audacity to say, Damasus is my mouth. He began a revision of the Latin Bible based on the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. He also updated the book of Psalms that prior to that time had been based on the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the original Hebrew. In Rome, he was surrounded by a circle of well-born and well-educated women, including some from the noblest patrician families. They were moved by Jerome's asceticism and began to emulate his example of worldly forbearance. This did not endear him to the rather secular clergy in Rome, who enjoyed the attention of such lovely, rich, and available women. Jerome's messing with their fun didn't end there. He offended their pleasure-loving ways with his sharp tongue and blunt criticism. As one historian put it, quote, he detested most of the Romans and did not apologize for detesting them, unquote. He mocked the clerics' lack of charity, their ignorance, and overweening vanity. The men of the time were inordinately fond of their beards. So Jerome mused, quote, If there is any holiness in a beard, nobody's holier than a goat, unquote. Soon after the death of his patron, Pope Damasus, in December of 384, Jerome was forced to leave Rome after an inquiry brought up allegations that he had had an improper relationship with a wealthy widow named Paula. This wasn't the only charge against him. More serious was the death of one of the young women who'd sought to follow his ascetic lifestyle, her death due to poor health caused by the rigors that he demanded she follow. Everyone could see how her health declined for the months that she followed Jerome's lead. Most Romans were outraged for his causing the premature death of such a lively and lovely young woman and at his insistence that her mother ought not mourn her daughter's death. When he criticized her grief as excessive, the Romans said, he was heartless. So in August of 385, he left Rome for good and returned to Antioch, accompanied by his brother and several friends, followed a little later by the widow Paula and her daughter. The pilgrims, joined by Bishop Paulinus of Antioch, visited Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Galilee, then went to Egypt, home to the great heroes of the ascetic life. Then, late in the summer of 388, he returned to Israel. A wealthy student of Jerome's founded a monastery in Bethlehem for him to administer. This monastery included three cloisters for women and a hostel for pilgrims. It was there that he spent the last 34 years of his life. He finished his greatest contribution, begun in 382 at Pope Domus's instruction, which was a translation of the Bible into Latin. 
The problem wasn't that there wasn't a Latin Bible. The problem was that there were so many of them. They varied widely in accuracy. Damasus had said, if we're to pin our faith to the Latin texts, it's for our opponents to tell us which, for there are almost as many forms as there are copies. If, on the one hand, we are to glean the truth from a comparison of many, why not go back to the original Greek and correct the mistakes introduced by inaccurate translators and the blundering alterations of confident but ignorant critics, and further, all that has been inserted and changed by copyists more asleep than awake? At first, Jerome worked from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but then he established a precedent for later translators the Old Testament would have to be translated from the original Hebrew. In his quest for accuracy, he learned Hebrew and consulted Jewish rabbis and scholars. One of the biggest differences that he saw between the Septuagint and the original Hebrew was that the Jews did not include books now known as the Apocrypha in their canon of Holy Scripture. Though he felt obligated to include them, Jerome made it clear that while they might be considered church books, they were not inspired canonical books. After 23 years, Jerome completed his translation, which Christians used for more than a thousand years. And in 1546, the Council of Trent declared that it was the only authentic Latin text of the scriptures. What marked this Bible as unique was Jerome's use of everyday street Latin of the times, rather than the more archaic classical Latin of the scholars. Academics and clergy decried it as vulgar, but it became hugely popular. The Latin Vulgate, as it was called, became the main Bible of the Roman Church for the next millennium. Jerome's work was so widely revered that until the Reformation, scholars worked from the Vulgate. It would be another thousand years till translators worked directly from the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The Vulgate ensured that Latin, rather than Greek, would be the Western Church's language, resulting centuries later in a liturgy and Bible that lay people couldn't understand precisely the opposite of Jerome's original intention. It's also why many scientific names and terms are drawn from Latin rather than Greek, which was the language of the scholars until the appearance of the Vulgate. The Latin Bible wasn't the only thing that Jerome worked on while in Bethlehem. He also produced several commentaries, a catalog of Christian authors, and a response to the challenge of the Pelagians, an aberrant teaching that we'll take a look at in a future episode. To this period also belonged most of Jerome's polemics, that is, his denunciations of works and people that he deemed dangerous. He produced a tract on the threat of some of Origen's errors and denounced Bishop John of Jerusalem and others, including some one-time friends. Some of Jerome's writings contained provocative views on moral issues. And when I say provocative, well, I'm being generous. They were aberrant at best and at points verged on heretical. All this came of his extreme asceticism. While the monasticism that he embraced allowed him to produce a huge volume of work, his feverish advocacy of strict discipline was nothing less than a legalistic extremism. He insisted on abstinence from a normal diet, employment, and even marital sex. His positions were so extreme in this regard that even other ascetics called him radical. As far as we know, none of Jerome's works were lost to the centuries. There are a few medieval manuscripts that mark his work in translating the Bible. Various 16th century collections are the earliest extant copies of his writings. Through the years, Jerome has been a favorite subject for artists, especially Italian Renaissance painters. He died at Bethlehem at the end of September of 420. 
Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.